Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Saturius Johnson. Today, we're talking with Jeff Gordonier, the food and drinks editor at Esquire magazine. He'll share highlights from a series of California culinary road trips he curated with an all-star team of chefs and critics. That Julia Child thought this taco stand was one of the greatest restaurants in America tells you something, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> because when we envision Julia Child, we don't necessarily envision her at a taco stand on Milpas Street in Santa Barbara. We'll also leave the mainland behind and explore the beautiful island of Catalina. We've always been known as a party island. Of course, there's plenty of drinks to be had, but really we are surrounded by the most idyllic clear waters. And so there are many opportunities to go snorkeling and diving and we have glass bottom boats. It's all coming up on California Now. Longtime listeners of this podcast and fans of food writing in general will no doubt recognize the name of my next guest. Jeff Gordonier is Esquire Magazine's food and drinks editor and the author of the new book, Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. He's joining us today to talk about his book as well as a culinary road trip feature he wrote for the 2020 California Visitor's Guide. Welcome back to California Now, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Sure. So your book, Hungry, sounds like a wild adventure across multiple continents. Can you give us a little overview of what the book is about? Yes. The book uh, takes us to Mexico, to Denmark, to Norway, to Australia with a man who's considered the greatest chef in the world. I understand that that nomenclature may be open to debate, but the person in question here, Rene Redzepi, is definitely the most influential chef in the world over the last decade. He's a guy who owns and runs a restaurant in Copenhagen, Denmark, called Noma. People who are super serious foodies tend to know all about Noma and tend to follow it on Instagram. They're obsessed with every step that Rene Redzepi takes, every move he makes. Um, and so the book is about how about five years ago, kind of in a fluky way, this guy, Rene Redzepi, reached out to me. He emailed me pretty much through his publisher and asked to meet for coffee. And that led, weirdly, to four years of traveling around the world together. That is amazing. <laughs> I, I can only imagine when you, when you got that email or that phone call what you must have felt. Like, why is he writing to me? Well, yeah. I mean, I was writing for the New York Times about food at that time, so I figured he wanted to promote his new books. He had a right. new cookbook out. But the weird thing is very quickly the conversation turned to something bigger than that. You know, he, di he didn't really talk that much about his cookbooks. He wanted to talk about us going to Mexico together. And he's very charismatic. He's the kind of person who looks you right in the eye and is very transfixing and sort of cool and mesmerizing. He's like, you and I should go to Mexico and eat tacos. And I was like, what's happening here? What do you mean? Like, why would we do that? You know? Um, but yeah, <laughs> it sounded pretty fun. So, uh, so I said, yes. And we, we ended up, I did an article about it for the New York Times. I figured it was over then, but then it led to more trips. And it kind of went on and on to the point where I realized that I had a book. Right. You know? so, so the book is about 
our travels together, but it's really kind of a, a study of creativity and risk and reinvention, that point in your life when you decide to change things up, which I was doing and which Renee was doing as well. Um, and kind of it's just about the art of the road trip, you know, in that way it dovetails uh, very well with, you know, our, the look we're taking at California here because it, there's probably no phrase in the English language that's more of an incantation for me than road trip. You know, like if someone says, let's go out or let's go on a vacation, I, I'm sort of nonplussed. But if someone says, let's go road tripping, I'll do anything. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll get on a plane, a train, let's rent a car, let's just go. And I find that incredibly appealing. I like the idea that you can change your surroundings just from saying yes. Right. I mean, and we, we love road trips on the podcast and to to focus the road trip around food. I mean, I almost feel like there's almost no better reason to take a road trip than to just like experience the amazing food offerings in an area. Yeah, that's what it's all about. I don't really understand what the road trip amounts to without the meals, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, to me, the road trip is all about the music you play in the car and the food you eat along the way. So let, let's let's shift our focus to California now. You bet. Uh, I mentioned in the intro uh, that you crafted three culinary road trips for the new California Visitor's Guide. Uh, you reached out to a bunch of your friends and contacts in the industry, people like Ruth Reichel, Dominique Crenn, Stephen Satterfield, and a whole bunch of others. And you and you kind of like crowdsourced some of the most delicious stops in the Golden State. Um, I can't imagine a, a, a funner assignment. Yeah, it really was illuminating. It was fun because, like, as you point out, I mean, many of these people, uh, Nikki Nakayama from N. Naka Restaurant in Los Angeles, Ruth Reichel, Claudette Zapita from the San Diego area. I mean, they know food, right? Mm. I mean, these these Kushbu Shah, who's from Food and Wine magazine, they, they, these are people who really, really know food, and they really, really know what's going down in California. So it was an honor. I mean, I, I'm a California boy myself. I grew up in the Pasadena area. So it was also a privilege for me to be able to celebrate the state because I love the state so much. And um, we, you sort of have these expert guides along the way on each road trip so that you don't make any mistakes because there's nothing worse than a wasted meal. You know, like you don't want to be <laughs> right. on the road in California and go to a bad place. And you will not go to a bad place if you follow right. this list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to miss any opportunities. Absolutely. No, you're going to feel like you did it right, which is what we want you to feel. And as a Californian myself, you know, when people tell me, oh, I, I went I went to, to L.A., but I ate here and instead of the place you recommended. I got to tell you, man, it breaks my heart. You know, I'm like, right. really? No, I gave you five taquerias to go to. Why'd you go to the lame one? You know, um, so, right. you know, we're here to help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's start with the first road trip you created, the one that starts in San Diego and moves north to Orange County and then curls kind of eastward toward the desert. Tell us about some of the best bites along that route. Well, I, I love that route. You know, the, the places in California that probably automatically get the most tourist love are going to be Los Angeles and San Francisco. But as as we Californians know, there's a lot of beautiful stuff happening south of Los Angeles. Um I've spent a lot of time in Laguna Beach. My parents now live in Laguna Beach, and I'm I'm there pretty much all August every year. So um, I'm a big fan of the stand. Now that may seem like a weird one to mention first here, but it's it's a vegan restaurant. 
That's <laughs> it's been there like since the early seventies. It's been vegan way before vegan was cool. And it's kind of like going back in time. There's a lot of stuff like this in Laguna Beach. There's a great old record store, too, called Sound Spectrum that I think has been open since the mid-60s. So you can go to Sound Spectrum for some, for some vinyl, and you head over to the, <laughs> to the stand. You can walk over there, get an avocado sandwich with some sprouts. It seems like, to me, a quintessential Californian experience to get, like, one hippie vegetarian meal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, what makes their vegetarian, their vegan meal stand out uh, amongst other vegan restaurants? The freshness. I mean, that's true of all sorts of restaurants in California, as we know, the freshness of the produce. And, you know, like they're not using avocados that are not ripe. They also make all these soups and soups have incredible depth of flavor in, in, fight of, in spite of the fact that there's no dairy, there's no butter, etc. You know, you just feel good after eating there. Um, I mean, another place I, I noticed along the way this year, that's a new place, is called Jeune et Jolie. That's in Carlsbad, California, close to the to Camp Pendleton. So it's only only a couple exits south of Camp Pendleton. And you you know, you go toward the water and suddenly you find this incredibly cool, sexy space. Um, there's a chef there named Andrew Bachelet who's who's making Michelin star quality French food. I mean, he could be cooking at a Thomas Keller restaurant. It's that good. And wow. plus the room. Yeah, it's that good. And it's just like the room is amazing. They have this really cool French art on the walls. They have a really young clientele. There's a lot of energy in the room. And all the music is played on old reel-to-reels. So they have these giant <laughs> reel-to-reel machines, and they're playing like all these French songbirds like you know uh sort of the classics of the french songbook from this it's just like where did i how did i find this like you if you're doing a road trip in that part of california and you walk into june jolie you will write me a thank you note like you uh -huh. will be so happy that you found it <laughs> <laughs> I, i've also heard there, there are some nice spots you know like in san juan capistrano in that area as well any recommendations yes my family has a deep passion for El Maguey, which is a family-owned Mexican restaurant near the train station in San Juan Capistrano. Now, a road trip, if you ask me, doesn't always have to be in a car. So if you decide you want to do it in a train, mm -hmm. that's fine too. Um, a lot of people love to take the train from San Juan Capistrano up to Union Station in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful trip. And in fact, my wife does that when she's out with me. Uh, she likes to go up to her office that way. El Maguey is right there by the train station. So you can get some uh, ch chicken mole. They, you know, I, I judge a lot of places, Mexican places, based on the sort of integrity of their mole mm -hmm. sauces. Um, in fact, mole plays a big part in Hungary, my book, um, because for much of the book, Chef Rene Redzepi is on this quest through Mexico to figure out mole, to sort of figure out what makes it work. A lot of Americans are only familiar with mole poblano, which is the, the sort of rust brown mole that has chocolate and peanuts in it. Um, but in fact, there are many, many moles. It's really an infinitude of moles in Mexico. So um, El Maguey is a restaurant where you're gonna, where you're gonna be able to dive into that. Like it's, it's not just a combination plate kind of place, you know, where you get, you know, an enchilada, a taco, rice and beans, whatever. It's beyond that. It, they have that too, and they do a really good job with it. But 
they have a lot of the authentic stuff that you might not be able to find along the road. Right, right. All right, so let's move up now to to the Los Angeles area. Say we hopped the train or we took our car up there. Uh, and, you know, you grew up in the L.A. area. So so let's talk about some of your favorite places there and then work our way up the Central Coast. It is impossible for me not to sing the praises of Pie and Burger. Um, mm. Southern California is a taco paradise. It is taco utopia. But, you know, it's also a burger utopia. The cheeseburger you know, McDonald's was essentially invented in Southern California, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the burger is very important to us. And um, my wife is from the West Side, so she goes to the Apple Pan. And I, you know, her family is very <laughs> deep ties to the Apple Pan, and I respect that. But I'm an East Sider, and for me, it's all about <laughs> pie and burger, okay? It's a classic, like, 1950s little burger place uh, where they, they put Thousand Island on the burgers. They have this great, like, kind of a wave of leafy lettuce they put on the burger. It's wrapped in paper. It's the kind of thing when you squeeze it in the paper, all the juices of the burger start running into the bun and you can't wait to taste, take a bite. I feel at home there. Oh, yeah. But I'm going to give your audience a secret. Okay. It's obviously tempting to go to Pie and Burger for lunch for a burger and a slice of pie, of course. But the real secret, the real locals, what they do is go there for breakfast, okay? Oh. And a, you can get a seat easily. They make their own hash browns from scratch, okay? Crunchy on the Ooh. outside, fluffy inside. They make their own white bread that they toast for the toast. You know, they mm. butter it. it. So you're getting everything like really handmade for breakfast. Um, but it is... <laughs> The quintessential California breakfast. Wow, it sounds really amazing. Sounds delicious. And, uh, you know, things don't have to be fancy to be amazing, right? No, of course they don't. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, to, to keep on with the burger thread here, I'm, I'm showing my hand a little bit. But another place farther up the road, it's very meaningful to me, is Paradise Cafe in Santa Barbara, California. Mm. I've spent a lot of time in Santa Barbara, too. It's basically the most beautiful place in America. And... Um, <laughs> I'm incredibly envious of the people who live there. Um, my wife and I actually love Santa Barbara so much that even though we live in New York, when we decided to get married a couple of years ago, we flew back to Santa Barbara and got married at the courthouse there. And oh, um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah, and where we went for our dinner on our wedding night was Paradise Cafe to get cheeseburgers and martinis. That was our wedding uh, night dinner. <laughs> oh, that yeah, sounds I love so great. it that much. But, um, I mean, it's just another place that has the quintessential um, California cheeseburger. It's a little different in style than the Pie and Burger one. It's a little thicker patty, a um, little more minimalist. Like, I don't think they have all the vegetables on there. But you feel like you walked into an Eagles song at this place. The uh, sun is streaming through the windows. There's an outdoor patio. You just don't want to leave, you know? Oh, yeah. So um, if you're in Santa Barbara... You have to go to La Super Rica. This mm. is an order. I'm not requesting that you do this like you have to do this. It's, it's kind of an American rite of passage for people who love food. Isn't that Julia Child's favorite restaurant? There you go. <laughs> A lot of people, you know, who, who moved the needle in the American food movement, you know, Jonathan Gold, Alice Waters, et cetera, and, you know, they come from California. Right. That Julia Child thought this taco stand was one of the greatest restaurants in America 
tells you something, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> because we don't, when we envision Julia Child, we don't necessarily envision her at a taco stand on Milpas Street right. in Santa Barbara. I love the thought of that, just that image of her walking up to the taco stand and enjoying one, you know, at a table outside. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it. you have to wait in line. I mean, it. everyone waits in line. There's no special treatment at this place. And it's all cash. Uh, you have to bring cash, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure that's true. And, um, you know, it's very, very kind of basic food. I mean, some things are just like tortilla and melted cheese or tortilla and melted cheese and chiles or tortilla and some roasted pork. And that's it. Mm. You put some salsa on it. You're good to go. You know, I used to work in Santa Barbara. I mean, I remember waiting in line there and seeing David Crosby, <laughs> Jackson Brown. You know, they're just waiting in line with everybody because they love these tacos so much. <laughs> I'm going to give your listeners a secret, though, similar to the pie and burger one. Okay. At pie and burger, I'm saying go for breakfast. Right. At La Superica, you know, you're going to see this big board uh, with all these tacos. And yeah, you want to get some. But there's a little, little board right above the window that has specials. And those specials tend to be tamales and sometimes like a stew, you know, um, mm-hmm. like a hominy stew or something. Um Get that stuff. That stuff is very special. Again, the locals know this. The locals will go in, see whatever is on the board of specials and and order two of each. Um, I'll tell you, last time I was there, I flew in to Burbank, which is my little secret maneuver. I like to fly to Burbank or Long Beach. And I rented a car and drove straight up to La Superica in Santa Barbara from the airport. That's 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 amazing. Uh, and as you all know, the third road trip you crafted covers San Francisco, the East Bay, wine country, even Sacramento. Let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite places in the Bay Area. Now, the Bay Area, I will admit, is, is somewhat foreign territory for me, a Southern Californian. I, I think a lot of the tips we have from people like Stephen Satterfield and Ruth Reichel are, are really helpful there. But um, I love it. I love being in the Bay Area. The Bay Area to me is almost like several states in and of itself because, right. you know, the Silicon Valley area is different than Berkeley, is different than San Francisco, is different than Marin County. They're all so different. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ordinaire, which is on our list, and that is a wine bar and a wine store in Oakland, California. You're probably hearing a bit of a theme, which is that I like places where you can just linger, right? You can just spend the whole day there. You don't have to leave if you don't want to. Right. And I, I did go to Ordinaire once for Esquire, and I think I just kind of told my editors, you know, I, I I was in a meeting or something. Like, I ended up staying there for like five hours. Um, You, you walk in, it's got this big high ceilings, cool staff. You can order some cheese and charcuterie, and they specialize in natural wines. Natural wines are having a moment in the culture. These are wines mm-hmm. that have no, I, I, ideally, theoretically, no, yeah, no inter, no sulfites, no intervention from uh, chemicals or anything like that. Um, that's the specialty of Ordinaire. So the team there is very helpful. You say you want to explore, you know, uh, a, a red, a white, and an orange wine or something. They'll they'll give you a flight, give you some some things to nibble on, and mm-hmm. there's books. There's books in between the bottles. So. As you walk through the store, you're seeing, you know, classic works of American literature and poetry just wedged in between the bottles. And you're you're welcome to grab a book of poems or something and just sit there all day. Hmm. Uh, to me, amazing. that's just 
Yeah, let's go. Spend the whole afternoon or a whole evening. Exactly. Just read poetry, drink wine, have some nibbles and just chill out. Yeah, that's a road trip where like maybe just park the car and stay there and leave the next morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Just to be safe. That's great. So uh, let's head over to wine country. Um, what's another place, say, north of the Bay Area that you think is a must see, a must try? I'm a big fan of the Charter Oak. Um, this is a restaurant in, in Napa Valley in St. Helena. Um, the chef who kind of oversees the Charter Oak is Christopher Costow, who most people know from the Meadowood, the restaurant at the Meadowood. Now that's like a, you know, high level Michelin starred tasting menu kind of place, somewhat inaccessible to some people because of price. I mean, I would encourage you to try the Meadowood if you can, but if you're just kind of driving through town and you want to see what Costow and his crew are up to, what they're about... The Charter Oak is kind of perfect. It's this giant room, giant. I mean, like huge high ceilings. It's almost like you walked into some villa in in Tuscany. And <laughs> they have this big roaring fire at the end. And the chefs are just like hanging things above the fire and throwing things on the grill. They're grilling meats, but they're also grilling vegetables, avocados. There's this sense of vibrancy from the fire and the light streaming in from, through the windows and it's it's like this big, beautiful room. You really feel like you're in Italy or Spain or something like that. And of course, it being wine country, they have an incredible wine list um, and incredible wine service. I'm a big fan. It was actually on Esquire's Best New Restaurants list a couple years ago, uh, the Charter Oak. It sounds like they're the whole package. Like they're not only bringing you creative, uh, interesting, delicious food, but it's just kind of like the whole experience uh, that you're describing of the the aromas, the the visual uh, beauty, and seeing the uh, food being prepared, and just everything about it from you know walking into the door to sitting down to just experiencing this um, whole everything going on around you just sounds so lovely. Yeah, man, that's exactly it. Because the thing is, when you're in California, you want to feel like you're in California. I think all the places that the experts and I recommended on this list embody that essence of Californianess. Like if you go to La Super Rica or Pineburger or Ordinaire or El Maguey or Jeune Jolie, in each place, it's not just good food. I think you'll be like, wait a second, this is what California is all about. And in terms of that holistic experience, I will add also in San Francisco, State Bird Provisions, which is recommended on our list and I'll give the the audience a little bit of a bonus. Mm -hmm. There's also a restaurant called The Progress that's not on the list that's owned by the State Bird Provisions duo. And that's just a, a few steps away. At both State Bird Provisions and The Progress, there's really great, great cooking. But there's also a unique creative approach to how the cooking is served. At State Bird Provisions, these dim sum carts roam around the room. So you don't order in the traditional way. You don't like order just from a menu or something. You don't say, well, I'll start with this appetizer, then this entree. Mm -hmm, you just mm -hmm. wait while these carts go around the room full. That's fun. Of, yeah, man. Isn't that fun? Like I these love are that. Yeah. It's irresistible. <laughs> Who doesn't? Like we're all kids at heart. And this is like what kids <laughs> love. Like the, these carts go around the room. And it's not, it's not Chinese food per se. It's not like right. Hong Kong dim sum. It's just based on that idea. So the carts go by and you pick what you like. At the Progress next door, it's kind of their version of a tasting menu. And it's predicated a little bit. I don't know if Stuart, the chef, would say this, but it's kind of predicated on the idea that most of us hate tasting menus. 
<laughs> because we can't <laughs> control them. So what right. they do there is they give you a, a sheet of paper with all the different dishes you could maybe get. And like you pick six that you like. So then they create a menu out of that. Like you're, if you're like, well, you know, I really don't like eggplant. I'm sorry. You know, then you just don't check that one. And so you you have this way to you, you're kind of an agent in creating your own meal. I mean, that's always the case when you order from a menu. But in this case, you're really helping steer them toward the flavors you tend to like, the flavors you don't, whether you like a lot of spice, whether you like a lot of, you know, creaminess. So both the progress and state bird provisions, I think, reflect the peak of creativity in San Francisco right now. So that maybe you maybe you got to park the car and stay a couple days before you <laughs> head back up to the wine country, but it'll be worth it. Uh, is there any broad advice you can offer road trippers looking for deliciousness? Hmm. Wow. I would say that the thing about California, it's a little bit like Italy. You know what they, they'll say when you're driving through Italy, you can take a random exit and find a place that's serving a great bowl of pasta or a perfect pizza. I think there's some truth to that in California, too. There's a lot of excellent experiences to be had outside of the big cities and off the beaten track, so to speak. I mean, one of the places we have is, it looks like it's called Duarte's, but it's actually pronounced Duarte's. That's just a California tip I'm giving you. (laughs) (laughs) In the same way that in New York... Uh, people say Houston Street, but we say Houston Street. So the Duarts is like an old Portuguese uh, tavern that's in the very, very tiny postcard stamp town of Pescadero. Mm. So if you're going up the the you know Pacific Coast Highway between Morro Bay and Morro Rock in San Francisco, like sort of around Half Moon Bay, you might be tempted just like, well, we're getting close to San Francisco. Let's just keep going. I get that. But it's worth exiting for Pescadero. If I remember correctly, there's an actual like old cowboy graveyard near there from from way back. And the restaurant's been there since like the late 1800s. It was started by a Portuguese family that was part of the fishing community there, I believe. And similar to Pie and Burger in Pasadena, they just they have excellent pies. They have a great artichoke soup. Um, they have um, a lot of artichoke dishes and a lot of great sort of Portuguese inflected fish dishes. Um, so Californians, you know, know about these places. Tourists often don't. I can't blame them. It's just, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know about this. So venture far afield. Don't just stick to the main highways. That's really great advice. And Jeff, that, thank you. This has been so great. Thank you for sharing all of these insider tips and all of these great uh, restaurants that we must go visit. And thanks for coming on California Now again. It's always fun. I love talking about California. <laughs> Jeff Gordonier is food and drinks editor at Esquire and author of the new book, Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. Follow him on Instagram at the Gordonier. As always, we'll have links to all the places we discussed on today's episode on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. If you want to read Jeff's article about the best road tripping bites in California, you can. The 2020 California Visitor's Guide is available now for free. Just go to visitcalifornia.com cvg to have a copy delivered straight to your mailbox.
When you picture Los Angeles, one image that might not come to mind is a laid-back island with a distinctive small-town feel. But that's exactly the idyllic place my next guest is here to tell us about, Santa Catalina Island, often just called Catalina. Gail Fornassier is the Director for Marketing and Public Relations at the Catalina Island Museum in the relaxed island town of Avalon, and we're excited to learn more about this storied getaway. Welcome to California Now, Gail. Great. Thank you so much. So to start us out, where exactly is Catalina? How big is it? And and who lives there? You know, Catalina is about an hour boat ride off of the Southern California coast. Most people uh, come out of Long Beach or San Pedro or Dana Point, which are all just south of Los Angeles. And the island itself is about eight miles wide at its widest point and about 21 miles long. So not a huge space, but pretty awesome. And there's about 4,000 full-time residents that live on the island. And who typically comes to visit Catalina? Do they come for like a long weekend, for a day trip? Um, who, who's coming to visit? We have a great mix of uh, day trippers from Southern California, of course. We also have a couple of cruise ships that are here every week from Carnival Cruise Lines and then other cruise lines stop by throughout the year uh, for other day trips. And then there are many people that come for a week at a time or a weekend at a time. And many often come year after year after year because they just fall in love with the place. I imagine. Yeah. So uh, and I've seen uh, photos of Catalina Island and it is just so gorgeous. Um, and, and you are lucky enough to be working at the Catalina Island Museum. Uh, so, so you know the island inside and out better than most, I would imagine. Can you give us kind of a snapshot of its history? Well, it is really fascinating. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize all of its effects on the island's history is related to a lot of American history. And so it really, the island we know for sure, uh, Native Islanders lived here at least 8,000 years ago. It's probably a little bit longer than that. It was part of Mexico for a time um, after uh, the Spanish War there. And uh, then it became, the island went into various different private ownership. And um, all leading up to 100 years ago, uh, William Wrigley Jr. of the chewing gum fame purchased the island in 1919. And that is what really started the the island and the way you enjoy the island today. Um, He really wanted to share this place with everyone uh, that was around or nearby and worldwide. Is it safe to say that that a visit to your museum is the best way to learn the full story of Catalina? Yes, we actually recommend and hope that people would visit us early on in their visit to the island so they can really get a sense of the place that they are and its impact in you know, the local Southern California community, but also in American history and beyond. What would you say are some of your favorite exhibits? Well, um, we always have a permanent display of Catalina history, of course, talking about all that great Hollywood history. And Chicago Cubs did spring training on the island for 30 years from 1921 to 1951. Of course, you know, under William Wrigley Jr.'s reign, he wanted to combine all of his interests. So if you're promoting the island, then why not bring the Cubs and have them here and then promote the island through all the Cubs fans and vice versa. Uh, So get all the people from Chicago to come out to the island. And I think a lot of people don't realize that history there. So this, we have a sports angle with that. We uh, have an interesting history with World War II where the island was taken over and used as a training spot for the Coast Guard and the Maritime Service and even the OSS, which was the Office of Strategic Service, the precursor to the CIA. 
and the Navy SEALs, and they were doing secret training on the island during that time as well. So there's quite a variety. You go from Hollywood to sports to war history. Uh, we even played a part in the Civil War. So there's lots to learn on the island. Uh, and then about traveling to and from the island, we have seaplane history and uh, some big steamships. So there's quite a variety, a bit of something for everyone. Catalina has a long connection to old Hollywood glamour, right? It really does. Uh, they started recording films and stuff on the island in the 1910s, basically. And uh, from there through the 40s and into the early 50s, they used Hollywood used Avalon and Two Harbors and the most anywhere on the island for whatever they wanted. Uh, they turned the island into Tahiti, the American frontier, uh, as many opportunities as they could to change it into something. We were basically Hollywood's back lot. So it was really called uh, almost a movie colony uh, for Hollywood there. And it brought us uh, hundreds of films to be made here. Mutiny on the Bounty from 1935 is probably the most successful as far as Academy Awards and things like that. But over 500 uh, films have been filmed on the island. Yeah, and then also kind of as a result of that, I guess Hollywood stars would hang out there and go there to get away from like the the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Yeah, they really did. A lot of them actually owned yachts and sailboats and they would come out to the island to get away. And islanders were very protective of the celebrities and their time here and wanted them to just be able to party and have fun and do what they wanted. So we had Clark Gable, Charlie Chaplin, Cecil B. DeMille, who actually made a couple films here and did a premiere at the famous Casino Building Theater. And gosh, Bing Crosby, uh, Marilyn Monroe lived on the island for a bit before she was actually Marilyn during World War II. But she she always fancied the island as well. And so numerous, numerous stars were here and would hang out and made films here and also just came to relax. So what was Marilyn Monroe doing there, uh, you know, in the mid-40s before she became really famous? So she actually, as a 16-year-old, married James Doherty, who was her neighbor at the time. And uh, he was 18 and enlisted in the U.S. Maritime Service. And that was during World War II when uh, the island was being used by the Maritime Service for training. So he got shipped over to the island to uh, spend six to nine months getting trained to be sent overseas. And his new young bride came with, and it was uh, amazing. Uh, married at 16, and we have some great images in the museum of, of her just enjoying herself at the beach and just sweet and innocent looking, of course. But of course, she was surrounded by sailors and got a lot of attention. And <laughs> we're pretty certain that that's where she found out her sex appeal and really kind of found herself. She was now in a free... Um, space that was, you know, away from her troubled childhood. And so uh, we think that she really kind of got her confidence and her Marilyn walk and all those uh, things that you would see later. Um, she kind of developed here. And when her husband was then shipped overseas, uh, she had to go back to the mainland. And she started working in a factory for the war effort. And uh, a photographer came in there and was, uh, you know, kind of documenting ladies working for the war effort. And that's actually how she got discovered to become a model. And then, of course, from there, she became Marilyn and the rest is history. So what what do first timers visiting Catalina do for fun? Like what is like the thing that everybody comes to do when they first arrive? 
Well, I think we've always been known as a like a party island and a party space. So the, of course, there's plenty of drinks to be had. But really, we are surrounded by the most idyllic and clear waters. And so there are many opportunities to go snorkeling and diving. And we have glass bottom boats and uh, all kinds of different ways to see under the water and experience that amazing clear water kelp forests the beautiful orange Garibaldi fish and everything else that you can see underwater. And I think that's one of the key first things that most people do. What are, what are some of the activities that people can do to really kind of experience that, that beautiful, clean, clear water off the island? Well, of course, snorkeling and diving. There's jet ski rental. We also have dolphin and whale tours. And uh, many. there's a cyclone uh, boat that goes from... Avalon to the other end of the island, which is like a more secluded kind of small resort version of Avalon and really idyllic in that it has palapas and kind of a Polynesian feel. So there's many opportunities to also go fishing. Uh, You name it, we've got it. And then what about those of us who like to go to the beach and maybe just hang out? What are some of the beaches that people can enjoy, whether they just want to spend a nice relaxing day, you know, on the sand? Well, you can just go directly right after you get off the boat or right outside of your hotel room. Center of Avalon is all beach all around the harbor um, with beautiful white sand and uh, a great opportunity just to walk right into the ocean and hang out there. Or you can go to Desconso Beach Club, which is just a 10-minute walk from the main downtown. And it's technically a private beach club, which means that they can sell you drinks on the beach, which is really a beautiful way to be grandfathered into a something that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and there's a lot of other stuff to do on land as well, uh, um, not associated necessarily with the beach. I've heard there's really great hiking on the island, and there's also bison to see. Yes, and the bison came over uh, with Hollywood, of course. They they provided <laughs> those for us in 1924. Uh, they came over to be a part of a movie, and they brought 14, and either they ran off and they couldn't corral them or they just thought it was too much work to take them back, but they left them here. And uh, now we have a herd that continues to be between 100 and 200. It's managed Um, by the Catalina Island Conservancy. And they also are the ones that manage 88% of the island, which is protected where the buffalo roam and also where you can go hike from one end of the island to the other. How do people get around on the island? Are there cars on the island? Is it just golf carts or people bike around? Uh, the cars are really limited. Uh, it, there's a 20-year waiting list to have a full-size vehicle if you live here. So they try to keep that down. But the main mode of transportation besides walking is a golf cart. And that is a very popular activity as well for visitors. You would think it was like a, an amusement park ride. Everyone's so <laughs> excited to take those golf carts around. Okay, so, so let's say I'm looking to enjoy a nice meal or two in the town of Avalon. Where would you send me? I would say um, there's a few great spots. Of course, many you want to go right by the water and be uh, there's a blue water grill. There's also right on the pier that is our main pier in the center of the bay that has like a great fish and chips place. Uh, And then there's other great more fine dining uh, like a Steve Steakhouse or there's many Mexican food options as well. So you get quite a variety even for a little small space. So uh, Blue Water Grill, what are, what are their specialties? What are they known for? What would, I, what would you send me there to have? 
I would send you to have any of their fresh fish. Um, they actually have their own boat and they go out and typically are fine, uh, harpooning swordfish in the local waters around the island. So it's usually fresh and that's the best way to have it, just a little bit grilled up. Uh, so that's the perfect opportunity there. They also are situated right on the bay. So you can sit on the patio uh, right next to the water and, and have the waves lap up while you're enjoying your evening. Yeah, that's really cool. Like they don't even go to the market to buy their fish. They have their own boat and fishermen who go out and get the fish for them. Yeah, it's pretty great. You can't get much fresher than that. <laughs> uh, what, what What's another uh, great spot that you tell people who visit, you really have to go here and have a meal? I would say uh, in the summertime uh, on the pier, the fish and chips that I mentioned, uh, at the end of the pier, they have great fresh seafood as well. And they make the best uh, fish and chips. So you can sit right on the pier, right out in the sun and um, surrounded by everyone that's getting ready to go parasail or go on a boat ride and stuff. So there's a, a lot of action around there. Uh, I would say that for sure. And then I always, my husband and I always end up at Steve's Steakhouse for a really nice dinner of a steak or fresh fish as well. And then there's also the lobster trap, which again, with the fish, but uh, <laughs> when you're on an island, that is what you want. You want a lot of seafood and a lot exactly. of people recognize that. So um <laughs> There are some good opportunities there. They have the best tuna poke uh, at the Lobster Trap. So Then there's the uh, brew house on the island uh, right in the center of Avalon. They have the best coffee in town, but they also make their own beer. And so you can get your own uh, Catalina brewed beer. And they have great names that reflect the island landscape. And they use like local Catalina sage for some of their brews and things like that. And then my other... Uh, I would say is get on the cyclone and go down to two harbors where it's just one bar, one restaurant and one little general store and the palapas on the beach and go have a painkiller cocktail down there and just sit back and chill out on the beach and maybe hike around and go for a swim. It's pretty relaxing. Sounds really great. I mean, Catalina Island is a gorgeous place, and it's definitely on my list of California places that I, I must visit. So uh, maybe I'll swing by the museum when I come by. I hope you do. I definitely will. Well, Gail, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you. Gail Fornasier is a staffer at the Catalina Island Museum, which you can find online at catalinamuseum.org and on Twitter and Instagram at Catalina Museum. As always, we'll have links to all the places we discussed on today's episode on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find our show on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe, and you can learn more about California and plan your next visit at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast.